Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Coming up on this episode of Constructive Voices, we'll find out about Inside Connections, an organisation that helps ex-offenders build better lives with post-prison jobs in construction. There are startling stats on mental health and suicide in the construction industry. We'll hear how one family's tragedy is helping others. And Pete the Builder and I will be talking about the wonder and woes of new builds. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products. Hi, I'm Steve Randall. Thanks for listening, sharing, commenting and rating the podcast. We really appreciate that. Uh, We've got some great guests again for you this time and some fascinating stories already lined up for future episodes. Don't forget, you can always find out more at constructive-voices.com. And feel free to get in touch if you have feedback, good or bad, we can take it. Or if you have a story for us, we're always interested in insights, innovations and initiatives within the industry. Now, when you hear that someone's done time in prison, it may well conjure up some pretty strong bias. But for John Burton, ex-offenders offer construction firms some of the best workers, especially those who have prior experience in the trades. John's keen to offer second chances to those prepared to work hard, stay out of trouble and build themselves a better future. He's been speaking to Henry MacDonald about his organisation, Inside Connections. Inside Connections was started just over two years ago now. I was an ex-offender in prison and I wanted to change my life and help change a lot of other people's lives with it. I designed an app on paper while I was in prison. And once it was all ready, when people started seeing it, you know, a lot of people were asking for help with work, help with accommodation, help with training. So the origins of Inside Connections actually came from when the app was just firstly sort of developed. And I realized that a lot of people needed more help than what I seen the people needed help in prison. For me, it was about um, seeing people going out of prison and coming back in the same night. Um, not getting the opportunities of somewhere to live, not getting the opportunities of, you know, the help they need. You get £47 and a rail warrant, and that's all you can sort of st- keep until you're out and into a house. Now, you go to a house when you get out, you haven't got no furniture. So it's about giving the people the help they need, and that's where the origins of Inside Connections begin. And why did you concentrate a lot and make the decision to work with the construction industry? Well, what what my bit is, is I don't believe in minimum wage jobs for people coming out of prison. Um, one, at the end of every week, do they have to top that money up by 50 or 100 pounds? What do they have to do to top that money up? Does it lead you back into a world of criminality? Or do you go and do something stupid that's going to put you straight back in jail anyway? So construction was my main bit when I, when I first come out and I always knew there was always going to be jobs in construction and a lot of companies would take on medium to low risk offenders. So that's why I sort of studied on the construction side of it. And then from there, with the construction, we've gone into fiber optic and data, uh, renewable energy, home energy management systems, and actually um, electric vehicle charging and all eco. So it is all to do with the construction, but it's something now that's never going to go away. In this country and, and alone in the world, all we're going to be doing is keep building and keep building and keep building. And while all that's going on, it's all going to be renewable energy. 
green energy. So for me, they're the the four or five different points of where I want to go because all the people I work with in the companies believe in living wage and above. And for me, that just tells a story of what we need, you know. When you approach various players in the construction industry initially, how did they react? Were they and are they amenable to the concept? Do you know what, Henry? You'll, you'll always get people who will be sort of step back from sort of doing anything with offenders because, you know, people think, well, he's been in jail or she's been in jail or what have they been in for? They don't look into the back part of it. They just see prison and think, no go, no go, no go. But what we've got to understand is in this world now, not everyone's bad in prison. People who haven't had a chance to do anything outside are easily going to prison because they can't get jobs. People think they can't get jobs because they've got a criminal background. Now, I approached a couple of smaller companies who did turn the nose up at us a little bit. But then I went to a lady called Jane Greaves from Wilmot Dixon. I didn't ever think walking into their offices what I'd come out with. Jane Greaves listened to me and she believed in me. And it was Wilmot Dixon and Jane Greaves that actually gave me my first chance to do something and prove to them and everybody else that it can be done. And it can be done in a big way that people get jobs out of it straight away. And what we've done is we tried, we've done a pilot on uh, the Liverpool waterfront with Wilmot Dixon. And on that site for the first cohort, we had 10 people who were still serving prisoners with over 12 months left to serve. And we had three people from the community who were going down the wrong route. We'd spoke to all the supply chain with Wilmot Dixon. And we'd explain that if there's any other courses like Hilti Tools, Abrasive Wheels, Asbestos Awareness, if there's anything specific you want added on the courses, then we'll add them on. So everyone was great. They all added the 2 in, and We designed a two-week introduction to construction which would give them all the qualifications plus a CSES card at the end. Following on from that, on the Monday, they all done two weeks' work experience with all different supply chains on site. Um, the end of the two weeks' uh, work experience, uh, Wilmot Dixon, and remember, they provide a dinner every day for 13 lads, and they put a massive big spread on for them on the, um, on the last day of getting all the certificates. And Henry, one person didn't turn up that day because they had the flu and stayed in prison. Everyone else on that uh, that course got full-time work. And that full-time work goes from steel fixers, electricians, uh, floating floors, um, polished floors, concrete floors. You know, they were getting really, really good jobs. And I see three or four people who have been on that site in the since that day has started. And three of them are supervisors with the same companies now. So... In that respect, it was Wilmot Dixon that gave me a chance. We proved it worked and we let it out to the world. And from then, we've got a lot of companies coming on board now. When was that relationship established? What more are you doing with Wilmot Dixon? How big of a player are they in the industry? And what other big players in construction are you linking up with? Well, Wilmot Dixon are probably one of the biggest players in the country. Um, not only do they build uh, schools, they build houses, they build colleges. You know, the infrastructure and the stuff they build is fantastic. But it's not just about them as a company like that. It's what they do with the community and what they do with the people who need that second chance. And I didn't realize how big Wilmot Dixon was. and I didn't realize how much sort of work they actually do with the young people and people from marginalized backgrounds. I went to the um, 
yearly foundation. There was about 150, 200 people in there and all the big wigs of the company. And I ended up doing a 15-minute speech on there. But just being there that day doing that speech and listening to what they've done with other stuff, it just blew my mind away. And I knew I was with the right company. And on the back of the Liverpool job, we've been given now 22 sites north of uh, Wales. And out of them 22 sites, I'm saying between 30 and 60 people will be going through them as cohorts. So you work that out that, you know, we're, we're talking a lot of people over the next 18 months that'll go through Wilmot Dixon's. From the back of Wilmot Dixon, we um, managed to get into a new company that have come into the UK, uh, BCEGI, which is a Beijing company. Really, really new to CSR and wanted to do something with us on the same as what we've done with Wilmot Dixon. And what we've done with them is we brought eight people from the streets who were going down the wrong route or have been arrested. We brought four, four under the age of 20 and four over the age of 23. And what I've done is I buddied them up so the older person would mentor the young person. Uh, they have done, again, two-week introduction to construction, uh, two-week work experience, and six out of the eight of them got full-time work on them, that site, and two went to another site and got full-time work on there. So it's just been word of mouth and, you know, what we've been doing and how well we've been doing. And not only what we do, it's the pastoral care, aftercare that obviously my mentors deal with. So I know Wilmot Dixon, the very first time they took an offender on, they took him on straight away after getting out after doing 15 years. Well, for me, that's that's a no-go area because getting someone out after doing 15 years and going straight into work, it's not really what they need. They need to be out at least a month or two. They need to go through a couple of courses, money management. You know, they have to do a lot of stuff to realize what's out in the world. And this guy didn't. And then every month he was short because he was paying his rent, but he was paying £150 Sky. He hadn't, he hadn't managed his money properly, and Wilmot Dixon were doing it, but it became a full-time job for one of their um, employers. So basically we took over that, and we take all over the probation, the doctors, the dentists, and we'll put a monthly um, form in to say, obviously, we, we've got to work like this way. And like when we work with the probation, some of them want them in every week. If we can get them into work, then we try and drop it down to once a month or twice a month, which gives the employer a little bit of um, satisfaction that they're getting them in for at least five days, a full week, twice a month. We've got um, the likes of um, Lango Rock. We're just in talks with them, actually, about um, hopefully putting a skills centre on the new Everton uh, piece in Liverpool. Um, we've been talking to different companies and we've we've partnered up now with a company in London called the Skills Centre. I had a dream when I come out of prison how I wanted my centre running and I wanted the outcomes from it and the Skills Centre have got it. I've worked with them now for 18 months and they've asked me to become a partner and run all these Skills Centres outside of London. So we're looking at putting six Skills Centres in now from Coventry up to Darlington. So you probably look at like Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Yorkshire, and Darlington, sort of Newcastle ways. So for me, it's 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 watching it grow, and the more places we put out, the more people we get into work, and I think the more people that see what Inside Connections has actually done for people, and we've changed hundreds and hundreds of lives now, and for me, that that gives me self satisfaction because I've been in a world of money. 
I've been in a world of criminality. I've been in a world of drugs, cigarettes, you name it. And you know where I've been, Henry. And money to me, I don't care about it no more. Where years ago, I was a real greedy person and I wanted to make this, do this and that. And do you know what? I don't care about money no more. I care about my people who are coming out of prison and who are not getting the help they need and going back in. And to me, prison's a big business. It's a massive business. And if they spent the money by helping people coming out a little bit better, then they wouldn't have this uh, thing about people going back in. But I think why are they building another another six jails with 12,000 spaces? Because it's, it's a big money. But it, it needs investing in what we're doing. And for me, it's all about construction, renewable energy, because that's the future and it's always going to be the future. So there are plenty of cases, therefore, where a guy's let out during the week maybe to work on a, on a site. You talked about 20 sites along with one company. And in some instances, they're, they're maybe going back into jail again. They're, they're kind of in a halfway house situation. Is that, is that the case with some, some of the workforce? Yeah, so the lads, who were, um, the lads who I had out, I had, say, 10 coming out of Thorncross, say, for instance. They used to get out at 6 o'clock in the morning and they'd go back at 8 o'clock of a night. And I'll be honest with you, Henry, probably rottle prisoners are the best people you can actually get to work with because you've got the people outside who are smoking weed and taking drugs weekends which when you've got CSES cards or ECS cards and stuff like that, you get caught on a site uh, with any, on, a, on a drug test and you've got any um, drugs in your system, you're getting banned and you're getting banned for five years. Do you know what I mean? So rottle prisoners, uh, all free from drugs because they get weekly drug tests. They're in a open conditions and are allowed to get out and start earning money. They want to start getting out and earning money because nine times out of ten, it's them being the main breadwinner and they've left their wife and children at home while they're stuck in. They know everybody, I think, in the country now, in the prisons and stuff, know about Inside Connections. I think in two years, Henry, I think we'll probably be the biggest uh, in the prisons and through the gate for for doing what we're doing because we're doing it in, we're doing it in ways that uh, basically – given the opportunities with the wages to get someone to go and live and, and be happy. In terms of the ex-offenders, vulnerable people in the community, and indeed people who are halfway between ending their sentence and on that kind of, you know, from 8am to 6pm, how many are, are working in, in construction? I mean, a rough estimate, how many would you guess there are now? Thousands, because what you've got to remember is people are seeing how good people are coming out and doing the work. And like I said before about employers, it's always about he's, a, he's in prison or he's always about this. Now, here's a little story what happened with Wilmot Dixon. Um, because Wilmot Dixon don't employ anybody below manager level, we had a container, classroom, put on site next to all the officers. Now, I got called into the office, and one of the first things was, John, we've got 10 prisoners on site from Monday. You know, we, we are all a little bit, like, scared. And I said, well, you don't have to be scared, said, because they're all just the same as me. And he went, but that's the problem. They're not just the same as you. I went, well, that's the problem. They are just the same as me. I said, because I'm an ex-offender. Your company has given me a chance. I've gone into the prisons. I've risk assessed. I've made sure everybody can work with each other. I've made sure all the postcode areas they can't work in, they can work in where we're going. I said, you've got to trust me on my pickings because, one, I can spot someone who wants to get out, change his life, produce pay and work for his family to help them. And I can spot a dickhead who wants to get out and do nothing. I said, so let's take this up on Friday. And if there's any problems, I said, we'll, we'll iron this out on Friday. I went in on Friday 
And the guy in question put his hands up and said, John, I apologize. I went, what are you apologizing for? He said, they've been unbelievable. They've been exemplary on site. They've followed all the rules. They've had their induction. He said, I've never been work with nice-mannered lads in all my life. And he went, me seeing 10 prisoners coming on, he went, I'd take 20 more like that tomorrow. Well, in, in terms of skills and interests, can you give us a broad outline of the, the kind of aspects of the trade that your clients are using or want to, to learn more about? You know, what, what, what things are they doing on the sites? So, like, um, when I go into the site, into the prisons, one of the first things I look for is people who have been involved in construction before. Because to me, they've got knowledge, they've got skills. And I'll be honest with you, Henry, you'd be surprised how many people have actually got proper qualifications who are in prison. And for some wrong reason, they'll have a fight in a pub or someone will hit them, they'll hit them back, and they'll get arrested. So the people that we put on there at the time, 10 of them had been involved in construction. A couple of them were electrical engineers. So when we got them on site and everybody seeing who they were and what they were working on, then, you know, basically they took, took on. Now, Amir, he's, um, he's one of our good lads, Amir. He's been working on site for two, two years now. He's now a supervisor. So it's stuff like that, that he's come out of prison. And don't forget, when we were on lockdown, they stopped everyone coming out and going to work. But the day that guy got out of prison, that company took him back on and give him a super, supervisor's roles as an electrical engineer, which for me, that just ticks all the boxes for me because it's ideal, it's perfect, and it's really, really good, and it's a good success story, you know. And what about the lads that are unskilled? Is there an opportunity for them to learn the skills of the, of the building trade? Yeah, well, what we do is, obviously, anyone who's got no uh, qualifications and stuff like that can always go on as a labourer after the two-week introduction to construction because that gives them the qualifications and the card to get on site. So they'll probably start as a labourer, but I'll guarantee you within six months they've started learning how to drive dumpers, diggers, rollers. And the likes of Wilmot Dixon, they want to progress them into higher paid jobs, which is really, really good. And let's look at the prisons themselves. I mean, do, do the governors and authorities that you interact with, are they are they encouraging this? Because obviously they don't want to see these prisoners back in jail again. They, they want to reduce reoffending rates. Yeah, I'll be quite honest with you. The governors and the staff and everybody in the prisons are really, really up for inside connections and work. And like one of the prisons now, one of the Cat D prisons, well, two of them actually, they've actually put asked us to come in and start working inside the prisons. So uh, one of the prisons has um, asked us, would we be interested in having a shed uh, where we could train um, construction, fibre optic and data, plant, digger, roller, dumper, and they've asked us to go in and start doing that um, sometime this year. And another one's asked us to go in and start training CSES and um, industrial cleaning as well. So, yeah, the governors are really, really liking it. Because when you're a governor, there's a possibility you'll see that face five times in a matter of five or ten years. And like the governor said to me, Johnny said, you know, some of them are really, really good at me. And like some of them say, you know, John, it's like, you know, look at him over there. He's been in seven times. You know, it's just people like him who need that second chance event. So they're the people I want to put forward and see if we can help them and pre progress them on in life. And, you know, for a lot of governors, it's self-satisfaction for them as well because they're not seeing the people coming back. And that means their jail is actually doing well as a resettlement jail and obviously keeping the statistics high of people sort of coming back in and coming back out. So on a note of that, I think 
when you see a governor and you, you know you've worked with and like now the lads, I still see the governors now and they always ask about the lads who are out in work and I always tell them what's happening. They're all really, really happy about it because they don't want people going in and out left, right and centre. People are always going to go in and out of jail and unfortunately at this present moment in time, the way the uh, country is, there's people going to be going in and out left, right and centre because there's jobs getting lost everywhere. But I stick to the jobs that are key workers not national health stuff, but I stick to construction and things like that where we can still get people out to train. We can still get people out to work. And, and you mentioned about, you know, one prison, possibly a, a construction shed. Would you like to see that rolled out further, that there would be training yeah. in, with that regard within the prison as well as guys going out on day release or whatever? Day release is just what we need to be getting people out because while they're stuck in for 12 months and then open conditions – then that's not giving them any favours and it's not helping them reintegrate. It's not helping them to go and earn money and work and stuff. Now, I can see this getting rolled out in a lot of different prisons over the next 12 months. And look at it this way, Henry. I've got 4,000 jobs to give out up to now this this, this year. And 2,900 are then going to be in civils and the fibre and uh, industry world. Now, this is national. I want to roll this out national with different prisons. But for me, the only prisons I'd really work with on this is Category D prisons because they're the people who will get trained and can get straight out. We might work with a couple of Category Cs where people can't go to open conditions for unknown reasons but can actually get out from a Cat C. So mainly Cat Ds and some Cat Cs. I'd be happy doing them all day long. Now, uh, has your project been replicated or studied in other countries? Not that I know of, but I've been in talks with a couple of people in the States and a couple of people in Australia. And um, it's it's different over there, Henry, and like in the States and in Australia. Bloody hell, you've been to jail over there. No one wants to know you. I've got a, a really good friend who works exactly the same as what I'm doing over there. And he's finding it really, really difficult. And he says, do you know what? He said, like the Aborigines, John, he went, they do not get a chance in this country at all. He went, 70% of them are still unemployed. Unemployed and not getting any, any education and training. Why? It should be there for everybody, whether you're white, you're black, you're green, you're yellow or what. We're all living in a society now where we are a multicultural um, industry and we are a multicultural country. We've got to give back to people that deserve what, what we deserve because why, if someone's got colour in the skin, should they be treated different than, than me or anybody else? I disagree with it and... When I read about some of the stuff the Aborigines, you know, get took away from and stuff like that, I, I don't, I don't find it right. But it happens in this country as well, and it happens in this country where, because someone's got black skin, you you think automatically, you know, they they're into criminality or whatever. No, you're wrong. Start learning off people like me, and start learning off people who have been like me, who have grown up getting called um, racist names. You know, I've been through that. It's not nice and. Where I come from in, in Liverpool, a lot of that, a lot of our places haven't got many BAME in them. And for me, it's it needs more, and I'm pushing for more because I don't care what you colour your skin is, you're a normal person and you deserve a second chance, and I'm all for that, to be honest, Henry. This podcast addresses its main audience, the people in the construction industry, and what a what kind of penultimate question, really, for you is, what do you want to say to those in the business who've yet to he- either hear about Inside Connections or have yet to sign up about what your 
clientele can do, what you can do for, for the building industry? Well, first of all, what they've got to get past is someone being a prisoner. Now, the first question I get asked, Henry, by any employer is, do you work with sex offenders? I can't work with sex offenders because I find two two prisoners, you've got your normal type of prisoner who'll be in and out all the time, blah, 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 but then you've got your people who've got illnesses. Now, for me, I think anybody to do with kids, children, sex offenses, stuff like that, it's a different sort of mindset than a normal prisoner going in and out. And I don't have the expertise to, to deal with all that. I deal with medium to low-risk prisoners. Not many people have had an arm around the shoulder and been pointed in the right direction. Now we've got a lot of companies on board. I've got tons and tons of statements, of feedback forms, of testimonials, and these are all off big, big companies who wouldn't even sort of dream of taking prisoners on before we've approached them, sat down with them, sure with what we've done. And we do it right. I run my courses like a boot camp because if I've put a two or three week course on, I don't want you turning up to my course four times late in three weeks because if you have, you won't be going for an interview with any of my uh, clients. You know, you need to be here on time. You need to leave on time. You don't use your phone while you're in training. Your phone goes in a locker. You've got to get them in a bit of a regimented way to say, right, listen, you want to change your life. You can't do it the way you're doing it this way. You've got to do it this way, and you've got to learn off us. We'll we'll teach you the best way for you to get into work. The five key elements I, I work on is timekeeping. Your timekeeping is essential when, you, when you're going to work for companies. Attendance, always got to be right up on attendance because if you're off work, you're leaving your partner or your workmates with more work to do that day. Respect the health and safety on site. That's what your courses and your trainings for. You know all the health and safety hazards. You respect them. You respect the people who you're working with. If your boss tells you to do something, you don't confront him over it. He's not telling you in a bad way. He's telling you in a way to get the job done. You don't go saying, I'll do this and I'll do that. Again, that's what the courses is for. And then the fifth element is you keep your head down and work hard. You've got a good job where you progress in that job. And that's what I always say to the to the people coming in to work for the employers. And I say to the employers as well, we've got to make sure attendance and timekeeping is bang on, health and safety is bang on. But what you've got to remember as well is you've got to respect the people you're working with as well. So I said, treat them with respect, speak to them, help them, learn them, build them up and let them become a good member of your site. And I like I say, I have a, a relationship with all the directors, the managers and stuff like that. And while I sit with all the supply chain, that's exactly what I tell them. And I'll say to them, you give any of these boys one chance, I'll guarantee you they'll prove to you just how good and hard working these people really are. How can they contact you, John? Well, if they go on our website, which is www.insideconnections.co.uk, you can go on with a referral form. But if anybody would like to email me, which is john, J-O-H-N, at insideconnections-cic.co.uk, I'll, I'll reply to them all. And I'll be quite honest with you, we've got a free phone number, but I'm quite happy to give my mobile number out, which would be 07714331173. That's John Burton from Inside Connections talking to Henry MacDonald. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people.
Still to come, we'll find out how Mates in Mind can help you address the mental health issues in the industry. Something Pete the Builder and I touched on last time. And Peter Finn, our man on the ground, is here now. Pete, how's things? Steve, how are you? Great to talk to you again. Yeah, very well, thank you. And uh, we really mean it. After our previous conversations about mental health, you know, I think I've, I feel we should just, you know, dig down into that question a little bit. Are you really, really feeling good? <laughs> well, thank you for asking, Steve. Thank you for asking. Ah, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I'm a busy man at the moment, as everybody is in construction. But yeah, no, my head's in the right place. I'm ready to do this. Well, there's a lot of positivity around at the moment. Things seem to be moving in the right direction. And certainly when we talk about the construction industry, and specifically if we look at the housing market, wow, it seems to be wherever you are in the world, things are booming right now. Absolutely. We've come through a very unique situation in terms of the COVID pandemic. Um, and what people obviously had no choice to do was to stay at home for a lot longer. So therefore, people are assessing everything around them. So they're looking at their own house and they're saying, I want to improve this. But they're also thinking maybe, just maybe we should now do what we've always dreamed of doing, which is building a new house. So they're thinking about buying a plot and, you know, building the, the home of their dreams. Because I think people have had that realization that, you know what, life is short enough. Why not do it now? Yeah. And also the, the pandemic is really crucial to this because it has changed people's priorities. You know, whether they are working more from home or whether they're just spending more time at home. And perhaps, you know, a house that seemed to work really well when it was kind of just a place to sleep and then they'd go off to work or they'd go out and be doing things. When they've been stuck in it 24-7, they realize that actually they could have something so much better if they were able to build their own. Yeah, absolutely. I have built my own home. I was lucky enough to inherit a, a piece of land. I, I went through the process then of taking that green field and, and building it and, and, and finishing it as a house. And now I'm living in that house with my wife and my, my three children. So I also am a building contractor and my uh, focus every day when I wake up is to go out and build homes for people. So I've lived both sides of the, the coin there so I can totally understand it. And there's lots of different reasons as to why people would want to uh build a new house. And the one thing that you can be guaranteed is that you are starting with a blank canvas and you're therefore giving yourself the opportunity to create your home. You have the opportunity to literally build the walls to the dimensions that you want, structure it the way that you want, have it south facing, have it north facing, do whatever you want, capture that view. It's certainly an exciting period in someone's life if they go and do it. Now we're going to talk through the process a little bit in a moment, but I, th I think what strikes me is that the first thing somebody needs is a bit of a reality check. They need to make sure that the dream isn't a ridiculous dream or and particularly perhaps in terms of time scale and budget. Because for every person who has a dream of being able to build their own home in the perfect location, you know, there are other stories of people who end up living in a caravan on that location while the building's <laughs> going on around them. And Because not everybody's in the situation where they can say, okay, I'm having a house built and I'm still living in my existing house. You know, for some people, they need to live on the plot. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we've all seen grand designs and we've seen that exact situation and and these are like our professionals building professionals you often see architects and like they could be working in in some you know really high-end architectural company in london and they're living on a caravan on, on their country estate because they they literally have remortgaged or, or they've spent all their money trying to plow it into their house and sometimes they don't get to finish the houses on time or, or sometimes they don't get to finish them at all it is one of those things that without the shadow of a doubt 
reality is very important. And thank you very much for mentioning that because that is key to this whole process. I do always try and manage people's expectations when I'm doing my own building projects. And obviously, budget dictates a hell of a lot. If you've got a, a large budget, you can definitely do more, but you also have to be careful because the larger the budget, sometimes people keep on pushing the boundaries even further and therefore they think that they're going to get the same value for money. But in reality, the bigger the build, the more difficult and the more bespoke and, and the more kind of off the norm type of construction that it happens, the more expensive it's going to be. So there's lots of variations. And again, you know what? That's probably the beauty of this whole process is that there is so much variation. And um, I suppose a successful project is one that goes from the green field to the successful image or the successful reality of what the person's concept was at the start. And I suppose to get there, it is a step-by-step process and you do have to take the steps. Like anything, if you skip the queue or if you skip the steps in the process, it usually has a ripple effect, which is usually a negative one at a later stage. And within all those things that you can plan, there are obviously the unknown factors such as the weather, which can obviously delay things. And uh, something we talked about before we started recording, actually, materials and not just the availability, but the cost. And that can vary. And obviously, if your time scale of the build is longer, there's more risk of disruption to materials or prices of materials changing. Absolutely. Like at the moment, I'm going through that exact situation. Like I have personally priced jobs as a building contractor. And, you know, we all know that steel and timber prices have gone to the roof, but I now have to try and either renegotiate some sections of, of the, the contract with the architect and, and the building team, or I just have to swallow it and, and get on with it. So there's a lot of that type of thing happening as we speak, but that definitely, if you're a client or, or, or a person, especially if you're going to be doing a self-build, you, you have to be careful that, you know, you may have budgeted for a certain material at a certain price, but in the current times when there's so many factors that can fluctuate the price of materials and labor sometimes as well, you know, you might get caught. So you just have to kind of, you know, make sure that you leave a bit of contingency there and you have to keep your eye out on it, you know. So I suppose if we were to go through a step-by-step process on it, Steve, what I would be saying is choose your site. Then you have to make your plans choose your your orientation of the way the house is going to be and your access routes and all those type of things. And then you've got to do the dreaded thing of getting planning permission. So you have to go to your local authority and you've got to submit the plans. And there's obviously due process that has to be done there. So at this stage, you've engaged a professional, an architect, and most likely an engineer, possibly a QS as well. And, you know, this is when your dream starts to becoming a reality, but at this stage, it's only a reality on paper. So therefore, it's how you kind of put the pieces of the jigsaw together on paper, and then you start discussing through the realities. Okay, the design that we thought we were going to be able to go for, we just simply cannot afford it. Or it could be a situation where the design that you you may have wanted to do the local authority just simply will not accept it. So there's lots of different variables in the situation already. But at least if you do your homework at this stage, you're entering into the process. And if you can go and get your planning permission and you've got your budget set in place, at that stage only should you really start engaging in getting a building contractor on board or starting to self-build yourself where you start you know, getting diggers in and, and digging out the foundations and, and start purchasing materials. At least if people have done the steps to get to that point, they've put themselves in a much stronger position because we've all heard and we've all seen it again on, on the TV shows and we've, we've heard of uh, 
Antidocal stories where, you know, the guy has gone in and he's put in his foundations and then two years later you see the foundations are sitting there but there's no house. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the worst case scenario. Contingency is important. And un, the, the unknowns really in a, in, a, in a build are what we're talking about, a new build that is. Whereas if you're, you know, doing a renovation or, or a refurb of a uh, of an existing building, there's some unknowns in the fabric of the building or maybe in the ground. Whereas once you've dug your foundations and, you know, you usually would have done test holes previously, you shouldn't come across too many other unknowns other than, of course, what can happen quite a lot is the change of mind. So when the build starts happening and people start uh, seeing the fabric of the building being built, they suddenly start going, oh, do you know what? Wouldn't it be just nice if we made that window three times as big as what we originally made it, you know? So it, that type of thing can happen. And look, I, I do firmly believe that, you know, there are times when your concept in your in your head or even when it's on paper on plan, and even if it was to be like a 3D image that you can see, until you see it in reality, and I, I, do, I do actually call it until you feel the space, until you stand there and you see that the sun rises and from a certain angle and the room is a certain, sort of got a certain feel to it, it is very hard to decide whether you go for a tile floor or a timber floor or whether you do a vaulted high ceiling or keep the ceilings low. So all of these little things do come in through, throughout the build, but you know what, that's the exciting part of it. Whereas if you were just going to go and buy a house, you have no choice on those things. If you're doing your new build, you do have a bit more of a license to 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 kind of be a bit more creative. And when you're working on a project for a client, do, do they ever sort of turn up on site with a magazine that they've just seen something that, you know, it's either <laughs> either a trend that's changing or or some horror story about a particular material that they they <laughs> suddenly don't want used in their in their new home anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's no doubt about that can happen again. I do dread when the new series of of uh, our, our our TV show is Room to Improve when that comes on, and and when you know uh, Grand Designs is on, and you're going, oh, I know that the client has asked me I'm watching that last night, and he's going to come in here tomorrow, and he's going to want these <laughs> big, you know, open plan spaces and all that type of stuff. Yeah, so look, that that definitely can happen. And then you know, whatever's in the news, it may be a material that has suddenly got a bad name for whatever reason, and Unfortunately, in these situations, sometimes a little bit of knowledge is a bad thing and people kind of do jump to conclusions the whole time and they may turn up going, look, I don't want to use a certain product because I heard last night that X, Y, and Z about this product is not correct. And usually it's only half information. And But, you know, most people are, are fairly... Uh, you know, civilized about these things and you can have a proper conversation and you can engage the other building professionals involved and you can have a discussion through and then you can usually guide them back in, in, in into the way that they want. A lot of times though, you do get partners in, involved in the build and sometimes, you know, well, most times there's there's a driving uh, person in the partnership. So one person might be on site a lot more than the other and then the other person turns up on site and goes, hold on for a minute, that's not what we discussed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you now become a marriage counselor more than a, than a builder, you know? And you're standing in the middle of, of these two people, you know, literally going to town on each other because it's, uh, you know, it's obviously a very, um, a very uh, passionate thing for people because they've lived the dream of the house and they've been through the process for such a long time. And then suddenly when they turn up and it's not the way they wanted it or it's not the way that they thought it was going to be, I just throw it out to people all the time. I say, now you have discussed this with your wife, haven't you? Or you have discussed this with your partner. And uh I know by the look in their eye that they haven't, you know, and I go, well, look, I'm leaving it with you, but I would advise you to do that. And, and when you're undertaking a project, do you ever get to a situation where they've asked for something that you, you kind of think, okay, you know, this might work for them now and they may truly believe this is their forever home, but 
this isn't going to play out well if they come to sell it in five, ten years' time? And, and, and how do you manage people's expectations on things like that? I do try and make suggestions is the best way to put it because, again, people can be very protective of their own designs. They don't like sometimes you, you suggesting to them that maybe they, <laughs> they, they might, might not be as young and as fit as they are in, in, a, in, a, in a period of, you know, another period of time or they may have children and some of the design features that they have put into their homes are completely unrealistic and completely impractical for, let's say, a family home. Like, I've got three beautiful young girls at home but my house is their house at this point in time because like as as much as I try and manage it and as much as I try and keep them in certain rooms, their toys are everywhere. And like there were certain things, uh, design details that that I, I implemented into my house when, when when I was building it. And if if I could turn back the clock, I'd probably change one or two of them at the moment. But then again, in 10 years time when they've all grown a bit bigger and, you know, life has changed again, then maybe the house will change back to 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 being more suitable to the way that it is. So absolutely, there's times when I'm I'm sit, sitting there in a meeting and, you know, the architect maybe suggesting this big high vaulted ceiling with glass going from floor to ceiling and all those type of things. And I'm sitting there going, that sounds great. And that will look beautiful in a picture. It will look beautiful in a magazine. But then cobwebs will grow and the window will get dirty and how are you going to get all the way up there to clean it or another one is lights they put these lights up in these really high difficult places like you'd want to be tom cruise to get up to these <laughs> uh, places you know what i mean just to change a light bulb so you know you have to kind of make sure that people understand that what they create they're going to have to maintain as well and again sometimes the wrong material some people drive really hard to, to go for a certain material and you have to try and explain to them that sometimes the materials aren't compatible with other materials that they're using in the house. And then sometimes that the material that they're using will deteriorate rapidly. The fact of the matter is that, as I said earlier, it's a blank canvas and, and that's a very positive thing in one way. But sometimes it can be uh, a bit of a negative in that there's no limits and people love pushing the limits. Like, I mean, the size of glass and the size of windows that we're fitting now in comparison to what we fitted 15, 20 years ago is colossal. Like, it's very rare that you see a, a new build without at least two or three very large glass features, big sliding doors. They may look very well, but completely impractical for our maintenance and for everyday life. And, and just finally, on the process of the build, and I know every project is going to be different, but kind of on average, how much should people allow in terms of budget and time for the build to complete over what they would, would like it to be? If they say, you know, this is going to be six months. Is it going to be nine? I mean, what? how does that work? Yeah, well, well look, you know, costs in every region are different. Um, but I, I would be saying if we, if we were to break it down in percentages, you know, if if you have in your mind or if you've been given a program that, let's say, it's going to take 12 months, you should add on 20 to 30 percent on top of that. Um, because, you know, there's always a little bit of setup starting and uh, getting going and then obviously there's finishes that happen at the end so if you want a turnkey completely finished project you should be allowing an extra between 20 and 30 percent to give yourself a bit of time either side for clear up and, and for, for for getting going at the start um, and in terms of budget 
like like being realistic about it, if everybody has done their job and if you're managing your own expectations, a 10% uh, contingency on budget is is a quite a lot of money. Of course, if you halfway through the job decide that you want to make your, your roof a copper roof, well then, you know, there realistically, you know, you're, you're, you're massively increasing the cost of, of your roof. So therefore, you have to allow for that. But I think a 10% contingency uh, in, in terms of cost is, is quite a comfortable one once you're prepared. But you, you often see people just, you know, they just pluck figures out of the air and just go, you know, I've got 300 grand to build my house and that's it. I'm going to build it for that. And you're going, well, hold on for a second. The house is huge and, and you're putting in X, Y and Z. So no, you're not going to manage that. Or if you do, you're going to be sleeping on the floor because you won't be able to afford a bed at the end, you know. <laughs> So no, that I think I think there are fair enough contingencies, and I suppose look to, to wrap it up. I I would say to people, if you have the opportunity where you have a bit of property that you could get planning permission on, and you're, you're kind of at that stage in your life where you would like to build a home, it is an amazing thing to do. It's it's really an enjoyable process once you, you're organised. It can be an extremely stressful process if you're not organised. Um, but like when when else in your in your life will you get to do something that is completely yours for you or your family and you can actually form it and dictate it to suit your family life and if you put in the right thought and if you actually think about things properly you can really create a very nice living environment for yourself going forward brilliant pete as always good chatting with you and we'll talk next time my man thank you steve talk soon constructive voices the podcast for the construction people mental health is something we've talked about a few times since we launched this podcast last month and there's good reason the pandemic has intensified the issues that were already there in society and it's a really big issue in the construction industry as jackie de burka found out when she spoke to james radoni managing director of mates in mind yes yeah, so mates in mind was born out of the health in construction leadership group back in 2017 there was a real need to work at and address the stigma around mental health within the construction industry. There was also some pretty shocking statistics, which um, still are pretty bad today, around suicide within construction. So effectively, two construction workers every working day in this country take their life. And I think sometimes organisations have not really been um, equipped to uh, understand and properly address the mental well-being of their people. We're now looking at organisations joining Mates in Mind and being supported by us for a number of years. We start off doing a bit of a, a, an assessment. So what, what are they doing right now? What might they have in place? Do they have the right sort of welfare policies and procedures there right through to are they up complying with legislation? Are they doing stress risk assessments, etc.? And then on to how can we upskill people? How can we improve this? And then on to what are the interventions that you have in place? Can people access counselling? Have they got mental health first aiders? That type of thing. So really understanding what are the right interventions to have in place. And and every organisation is different. Some people have got some uh, provision already. Others others don't. Um, and, and we tailor a, a programme around that to kind of firstly address how can we prevent people in the organization suffering from poor mental health, but also recognizing that, you know, there is, is sometimes outside factors that affect people, even if you had it perfectly in an organization. So there, mm-hmm. there is always a need for, for intervention as well and support uh, for people on the way. And that's what we do with organizations. What happens when somebody is at work and they say to their boss, I'm struggling with my mental health. If they haven't been trained if they haven't got the right um, skills 
um, then the usual response is uh, firstly a sharp intake of breath. You know, if that kind of, oh my goodness, is going to be one of those types of conversations, I'm not really equipped for this. Yeah. But then it's kind of like, well, I think you should probably take two weeks off, go and see your GP. Then their likely response, the standard NHS response is, I'll sign you off sick for two weeks. Here's some pills to help you sleep. So now you've mm-hmm. got the employee who is struggling with their, their mental health, isolated from work, um, sat at home, nothing to do, staring down a, a bottle of pills. For some people, absolutely taking time out from work is really, really important. And getting that support and even even getting medication to support it is really important as well. But for employers, it is vital that, you, you know, when somebody says they're struggling with mental health, this is the golden opportunity to show that person you're there for them and you can support them. And even if they're taking time out to be able to stay in touch, be able to reassure them and also reassure them about what's going to happen when they come back to work. So otherwise, at the end of the two weeks, they're kind of even more stressed because they don't know what's waiting for them or they're thinking that there's just a pile of work that still hasn't been done. And actually, the issues that caused the poor mental health in the first place just haven't been addressed. So working with those individuals to understand, so what were the causes? What can we do? And maybe even just a staggered return back to work. Or do we need to change your your um, your role in some way to make it make it so you, you, you aren't struggling with your stress or your mental health? And it sounds basically like your organization, Mates and Mind, is very much involved in um, bringing a sort of a cultural change across mm. the construction industry. Now, April was Stress Awareness Month. This is something you're running a few years, aren't you? What what are its aims and, and what was different, James, about it this year? We're very, very aware that the, the past 18 months for people, as we headed into uh, a, a very difficult year last year and, and we're still managing our way through it right now we're very aware of the stresses and strains the additional stresses and strains that's put on people whether that's been because of um they've been furloughed or they've lost their job or whether there's um uh, working in a new environment you know um worries about family members worries about um covid and catching it etc it's all mm-hmm. mounts up for people um, so we wanted to, to really focus on what are organizations doing to better manage the stress of their employees and making sure well, organizations are, are compliant with the legislation that is out there, uh, making sure that they understand what that is and how they can how can they work with it, but also recognizing that um, if they don't, what some of the consequences can be. And, and we were really fortunate to work with uh, an incredibly brave family whose uh, story is that they're uh, the dad, husband, brother, uncle, colleague, you know, that this guy, Chris, in the family um, had been a a 30-year veteran of the construction industry had, you know, and had worked um, on some really big projects. And because the work stress really got to him and it, it perhaps wasn't being managed in a way that uh, was supporting him and what he needed at that time, um, his mental health declined rapidly. And we're talking from sort of beginning of the year through to April. And in April, in 2019, um, Chris took his own life. You know, it, it was counter to his 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 uh, personality and uh, and what his his family, what his colleagues would say about it. it was It was a real it was a real sort of 
shocking uh, thing to happen. Um, and, you know, yes, they had seen his his changes in him and they'd seen his mental health decline and he was was absolutely reaching out to try and get support, but they just couldn't access it fast enough. So a real tragic story, but the family have come forward and said they want to share this story to educate people around what what sorts of things can happen if they don't um, properly address and have the support structures in place uh, for around around stress in the workplace. Um, so we we pre- produced a video with them, which is currently being circulated around um, social media, and it, it's proven to be our most viewed video and it really hits the point home very very hard i think the video is so important james the way it's presented is so balanced and the family you know who have been so incredibly brave obviously to work with your team um they also presented in such a balanced way that i think it must hit home to all sorts of people it's very very powerful they're a really relatable family you know it could you know it's really easy to see how that could be your your family or definitely are there statistics that are quite accurate around that like the stress levels depression suicide and even attempted suicides within the industry we know the suicide rate is particularly high if you work in construction you are 3.7 times more likely to take your own life compared to the national average if you work within construction in the finishing trades that risk is is 50% higher and why is that the case? Well, we we have looked at this quite a lot, and we looked around what are what are the causes of, of poor mental health within within the construction sector. And one of the key things that comes back is around finances. This is probably the nature of working within construction, um, in certain parts of construction anyway. It's a, it's a bit of a gig economy. Um, mm. And people don't always know where where the next job's coming from, and and so you know there's a big expectation on them to kind of support themselves, their families, etc. Um, the nature of the work for many people in construction is that they are travelling away from home for long periods of time in order to get work. So it means that they are away from their friends and their family. They are living in isolation. They don't always necessarily know people on the site very well um, that they might be working on. So again, still in isolation. And so that can sometimes lead to people wanting to kind of find other ways to spend their time, you know, when they're in their bedsit kind of thing, you know, and is mm-hmm. that is that going to the to the bookies? Is that sort of, you know, drinking a bit more than they would normally? Sure. So it, it can have some quite negative impact on other areas that can impact your finances, but can impact your mental health in other ways too. Now, what about self-employed tradespeople? How does their experience differ from employed workers in the industry. Well, Makes in Mind has a has a mission to reach seventy five percent of the construction industry by twenty twenty five, and most of our work up to now has been very focused towards organisations and reaching down through organisations and their supply chain. Now, some of those people in that supply chain will be self employed, and we we know that we'll be reaching out to some of them. But nearly a third to a half of the sector are self-employed individuals. And, and I think we could do more as a charity to, to reach out to that audience. Now, we're very aware that the self-employed and sole traders and even micro businesses, they're time poor. Do they have that additional money to invest in a bit of training or a bit of support, et cetera? So what, we'd, what we're doing at the moment is working with the Institute of Employment Studies to roll out a survey to 
this this cohort, this group of people um, who we know is so important to the sector to better understand um, both their needs um, and um, how we can address them. But really importantly, how do we reach out to this audience and how do we how can we provide the interventions to them in the right way? We, we want to provide this as a, as a free service down the line to them so that this is, you know, that this isn't going to impact on, on their on them financially. We're doing this work now um, with the IES um, and um, there is no doubt going to be opportunities for us to kind of, we're, we're going to want to speak to people who are self-employed in the industry. Um, and, and if people, you know, if people are self-employed or in micro businesses or sole traders, then um, we'd love to hear from you because we'd love you to be a part of our working groups or to undertake some of the surveys that we're going to put out. Please come to our website and um, and fill in the contact form. How important is a holistic approach to mental health? Do yourself and mates and mine see much overlap, James, between, for example, maybe somebody being overweight or having unhealthy habits like you discussed earlier on? Um, are these factors that can either improve or disimprove stress levels and mental well-being do you believe well we we absolutely believe in a holistic approach to addressing uh, mental health now i'd say that's there's 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 two elements to this i think from just from a mental health perspective um we we speak to organizations quite often that sort of say you know oh we don't need we don't need mates in mind because you know we've already got um mental health first aider so we've done that we've done our mental health bit um, and then when you start to inquire about, you know, what, is, what are your policies? What you know, what are you doing around stress management? You know, um, what training have the rest of the workforce have? What are your mental health first aiders talking about? How are they being supported? And you can kind of see the kind of eyes widening on these people, and them thinking, "Oh crikey, I thought I'd done it." You know, um, <laughs> it, you know, there is there is no silver bullet here where you kind of go, "Well, you know, I've done this one thing, or I've provi- I provided a little bit of training, and that's it, mental health done." This is an ongoing thing that you need to manage in your business. We do work with the British Safety Council, and they have a program called Being Well Together, where um, they can provide organisations with all of that wider well-being piece, and mates in mind provide all of our all of our services through that as well. So they get the they get the benefit of having all of the stuff that we do for organisations, plus the benefit of having all of the support um, with the wider wellbeing piece as well. How can organisations get involved with Mates and Mind? We, you know, we, we are always uh, looking for, for new supporters of, of Mates in Mind. So um, firstly, organisations that feel like that, you know, they would like to understand more about the work that we do, we'll, we'll you know, come to our website, um, matesinmind.org, fill out the contact us form, uh, and we'll reach out to you and, and and we can talk to you about your organization because it is all about how can we tailor a package for for those, for individual organizations of any size and you know and we do work with big multinationals right down to the 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 man in a van and his five mates kind of thing so we do cover the whole the whole gamut and, and as we talked earlier we're going to reach out to sole traders as well so organizations with any questions around what they what they're currently doing or what they and if they want to build on what they're doing or if they have not done anything at all they can reach out to us and we will listen to them and we will um, find a way to to um, get the right support to them we're also a charity so if there are people out there who want to raise funds for us as an organization and help us combat 
the the stigma around mental health in in the workplace um, and support um, uh, organizations so we don't end up with the situation that we had with with Chris then please do again reach out to us we're very lucky that organizations also choose us as their um, uh, charity of the year and, and make um, significant donations to us w- as well and that's really important for us to keep going and to keep supporting people the way we have uh, I came across the impact awards James what what are those yeah so um, we do want to recognize organizations who who are really um, committed and have really shown that they are um, excelling with addressing uh, mental well-being in the workplace. So we celebrate teams that do it, individuals that have um, uh, shown this 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 skill, whole organisations as well. So um, and, and again, those are those are awarded to to large organisations and small organisations alike. So it's just our way of recognising um, those people who are what we'd like to say leading the way uh, around mental mental well-being in the workplace. If you recognise that one of your colleagues has stress levels that seem to be too much, what what, what would you be doing about that? What what advice would you offer? What's important is, you know, how do you recognise that stress in the first place? You know, and people go, well, what are the signs of stress? Well, there's there's not necessarily a single set of signs of stress. It's really around what changes do you see within somebody? Now, if you see somebody becoming more um, aggressive, more frustrated, um, or being more withdrawn, not being as sociable as they were before, these may be signs that they're struggling with their their, their mental health. So the important thing is um, is that we ask. You know, the mm-hmm. ask is so important, and it's something that us men are generally a bit rubbish at doing. Ask, yeah. ask twice. You know, so really, how you know? But how are you really doing? And if you're really worried about somebody, if somebody is there and they're and they're talking about harming themselves, um, taking their own life, they need to speak to, speak to the Samaritans. They, you know, you that that is that is somebody that needs immediate support. Um, but you know, Samaritans isn't just there for people who are contemplating suicide as well. Um, and many people don't realise this too. The Samaritans is is there to talk to anybody about any issues. Is it shame? Is it the emotion of shame that, you know, stops some people from making those type of steps of, of reaching out for help, do you think? Yeah, uh, it, it absolutely is. It's the, it, it's the idea that they're letting, they're letting the side down. They're letting themselves down. Um, they are, they're not sort of um, being there for their colleagues, for their their job and there's that shame around that and that's sometimes what holds them back and that that's why it's so important that employers can have those human conversations and reassure people if they're really struggling with the pressure you know in, in their job that that doesn't mean they're letting the side down at all it, it means that perhaps the there's something wrong with the the what we're asking them to do or how they're being asked to do it and it's so important you speak about it it's it's the thing that we talk about the, the most in inmates in mind you know everything is centered around starting the conversation mm-hmm. um, and, and that's absolutely core to, to our belief and, and so if there's anything that I would say to people today if they're worried about um, uh, their own mental health or a colleague's mental health is talk about it and if if someone wants to talk to you about it listen to them okay. Finally, one question. Um, 
in your experience with Mates in Mind, for those people you've helped through the organizations that you work with, would you find that it could be true that um, after the darkest night comes the lightest morning? Yeah, absolutely. You know, reaching out for help is, is sometimes the most difficult thing for an individual to do or even an organization to do. But then receiving the, the right support and, and being able to work your way through it can be such a huge weight off um, people's minds. You know, it can be life changing and it can be life saving. James Rodoni from Mates in Mind talking to Jackie DeBurka. And that's about it for this episode of Constructive Voices. My thanks to all our guests. And if you have comments to make on anything you've heard or want to hear on the podcast, please get in touch through our website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Or find us on social media. New episodes are out twice a month. You can follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app to make sure you don't miss a thing. And we'd really appreciate reviews and ratings too. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access, British-made scaffold towers and access products.